Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Categorically Oscars. I'm Cal. And I'm Chris. And this is our Christmas episode. Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, we wish you glad tidings of great joy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or, yeah, um, it's an unusual Christmas, I'm sure, but hopefully everybody's making the best of it and uh, able to interact as much as possible with people who you would normally be seeing in person. So, yeah, happy Christmas, everyone. And you're in England, is that right? That's right, yep. Um, Currently in, well, in quarantine in London. Um, But, yep, I've made the move. We are in the same time zone for the first time and categorically Oscars. Um, And should be for the foreseeable future, so it's exciting. Yep. Uh, and I'm going to be in the north of England um, visiting my family. I don't know if we'll be able to go anywhere yet. Um, depends on the tier system that uh, has been established. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be fun and lots of drinking will occur. And um, <laughs> Yeah, some things never change. Yeah, exactly. Okay, um, so uh, this week, what have we got this week? This week, um, well, we're going to be doing kind of a general journey through uh, Oscars of Christmas past, um, or Christmas of Oscars past, one of those. Um, <laughs> but our, our jumping off point is going to be the best animated short film category of 1982, which featured... Um, one of the classics of the winter slash Christmas uh, animated genre. Um, only three nominees this year. Um, one of them was uh, The Great Cognito by Will Vinton, The Snowman by John Coates, um, and Tango. The winner was Tango by Zabigniew Rebczynski. Yeah, and uh, The Snowman lost um, this Oscar. Mm-hmm. Um, which I, I mean, I thought it would be good to discuss this category because I discovered that fact and I thought, oh, I wonder what it lost to. So this is where the kind of inspiration for this category has come from. And, um, also it, it's Christmas and these films, you know, amount to about 35 minutes. Um, so they're very easy to watch, um, for anyone that wants to catch up with this episode if they haven't seen them all if you've only seen the snowman pause it now uh spend 10 minutes watching the other two and resume the podcast mm-hmm. yeah it's very very accessible these films if you're if you're under time constraints yeah okay um so let's talk about will Vinton's the great cognito um Okay. This is essentially a stand-up routine um, with a guy delivering a series of impressions of historical figures. Um, you've got Churchill, Patton, Hitler. Um, mm-hmm. What did you think of the humour involved in this? Um, the the humour, most of it didn't really land for me because, um, first of all, it wasn't was it actually the person doing the impressions? I don't think so. I think they just said, and now I'm going to be Hitler, and it was just audio of Hitler. Or now I'm going to be this person, it was just audio. 
of that person. Was it? So, um, I, so that's what it sounded like to me. I mean, I, maybe I'd have to rewatch it, but that, I mean, no, I don't think I will. Um, <laughs> the, I'm obviously we just told the, people to watch to watch these, and then you said you wouldn't bother. Well, they'll know. They watch it the first time, so you know what we're yeah. talking about. Yeah. Um. It's on this. I mean, this one's only what four minutes. Even it's it's super short. Um. But I, it's incredible. The the animation, the claymation, is in t- incredibly imaginative. Um. And it gets just so bizarre and and freaky at points that. It kind of carries me through the very kind of stale Las Vegas showman type of humor that the that the actual stand-up uh, is delivering. Yeah, it's almost as if the stand-up is is going too fast a pace for to me for me to you know gather any of the jokes, and it's all very. Um, it's all very self-satisfied as well. You know, it feels mm-hmm. as if it's all, um, it's like a smirk. It's like the writer's smirking after every person's finished the little routine. So it rubbed me up yeah. the wrong way. And I really didn't get any of the humor. I don't know if it, was it dated humor? I I just didn't find any of it funny. I think so, yeah. It's just incredibly dated and incredibly, like I said, kind of... Um fast-paced Las Vegas stand-up routine where you're not really meant to catch all the jokes. You're just supposed to be kind of swept up in the energy of the performance. Um, I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've, uh, if you're a Steve Martin fan, but he had a stand-up bit where he satirized um, Las Vegas comedians. And most of it is him just going like, Sammy Davis Jr. And this was kind of like that. Um, yeah, and so yeah, I've I, seen stand-ups before doing impressions and thought they were really mm-hmm. funny, but it was all a bit yeah. more measured. This felt like it was just barreling forward without really considering the audience. Yeah, I, I think that was kind of a style at the time, or um, at least a style that this film seems to be lampooning a little bit, um, and using as an excuse to do the kind of wild claymation antics that that it. Uh, does some of them are quite unexpected which i did enjoy i was just gonna say the moment where his head is gone and and he pops out of his own neck like another fully formed version of him that was Mm. i mean nightmare fuel but also funny i liked the bit where the mouths were coming out as well um Mm -hmm. of the head um i think it's well the interest is in terms of the animation and the animation branch is what votes on this, um, on this category in 1982, especially. And I think mm-hmm. obviously they, they're looking at it from an animation standpoint and they're not looking at it from a writing standpoint. So it's, it's not difficult to see why this might have been nominated. Um, right. The, the morphing of the head, it, it is incredibly creative. There's a lot of visual creativity there. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's a showcase. It's also short. I don't know if that means anything. Um, but it's it's one that you can just watch and you can think, okay, I can see a lot of uh, tricks within that 
short space of time. Um, it's almost mm-hmm. like getting as much into as much into as little time as possible um, in terms of the animation. So, yeah, I can see why people gravitate towards it, but was not my cup of tea. No, mine neither. Should we move on to the snowman? Yeah, and the snowman mostly was my cup of tea. I thought this was a, a quite a quite a nice magical little little film. Yeah, um, I think mostly I, I I kind of um when it came on because I'd never seen this from start to finish before. Uh, I always kind of caught bits that were on TV. Um, is it a big deal in America? Or is it just a, a British British thing? I don't know. It it must be because I had never heard of this. Mm. Okay. Uh, before okay. we did this. <laughs> okay, it's on it's on British television every year. Um, mm. So it's quite it's quite famous. Raymond Briggs wrote the story, and uh, I think like you can't often you can't beat hand drawn animation. It just feels very. You know, you see these um, Tom Moore films now with the Song of the Sea and Secret Curls, and it's mm-hmm. got the same kind of um, hand-drawn animation, and there's just something about it that's quite transporting. Um, even though you can see the animation at work and unraveling and coming together, it's um, there's something very artistic about it, almost like uh, you're watching like a gallery. Um, so... For me, it, it it's um, it's a victory for you know the look of the of the film is fits in with the emotion of it to me. Totally, and I have to admit, I'm not usually a fan of these kind of you know sickly sweet childhood fantasy uh, mm. type stories. So I, I was a little resistant to it at the beginning, but it it did sweep me up in it um, for the. By the time they took their little flying adventure and we had that musical interlude, I was I was into it. I was sold. Um, yeah. I will say it seems weird that the snowman coming to life just seems to be a normal thing in this world. <laughs> like, the boy is clearly, like, obsessed with this snowman before it comes to life. Like, he's waiting for it to come to life and then when it does he's just kind of smiling like yep this is reality as i know it and he just rolls with it um so yeah, there's no there's no sense of conflict there or a sense of obstacle at any point is there it's just sort of no accepted no. yeah mm-hmm. which i guess you know as a child you you have that kind of accepting nature of magic but it's it's he does seem to be expecting something to happen before the snowman comes to life, which leads me to think that snowmen just do that where he lives. Yeah. It's, I mean, I don't think the film's particularly deep, um, especially for a 25 minute film, but there are a lot of cute moments and, um, the end is, uh, the end is quite the downer actually. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you'd say, yeah, it's not that deep until you get to that just stark reminder like, oh, no, joy and happiness are fleeting. The only constants <laughs> in this world are pain, misery, and death. Happy Christmas. Yeah. It's, and science. And yeah. Science melting. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, that was that's some pretty cold shit for a Christmas special. And um, every year, it's every year they play yeah. it. There must be kids yeah. crying around the around the country every year. Um, I know. I mean, I wonder if any parents, like when the kid goes to sleep with a scarf, are like, the end. Who wants cookies? You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, the snowman didn't really die. <laughs> I guess I guess he could build him again. I mean, the snow is still there. Yeah, but it's on its way out, isn't it? It'd just be slush soon. It'd be like a slush man. Nobody wants that. But what I wonder, though, is has this happened to this kid before? Like, is that why he is excited, builds the snowman, and then is just staring at it out the window constantly? Mm. Has Is this something he does every year? And then every year his new friend melts, and every year he builds a new one. That's, oh, that's, that's dark. That's Yeah, that's vicious. Um. <laughs> I liked what I liked about it. I liked um, the musical element, and also it, the snowman is almost gliding in the scene, which I think is quite quite good. It's almost like it's um, it's quite uh, it's more like a dance feel at times, like you know ballet. Some of it, like it just feels very um, in tune with the music and in tune with the score. So I kind of liked that, yeah. the way the way it, um, synchronized with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the sound design and the overall music, uh, the score is really great. Um, apparently, there's a um, a newer version where David Bowie does the intro. Um, oh wow! That yeah, that people are either oh so cool or this is ruining the original or something like that. I don't know. I think it certainly wasn't Bowie doing the intro when I watched it. So. Yeah. Any more on the snowman? No. Um, Like I said, I mean, I think probably it's equivalent in the U.S. just in terms of constant watching on Christmas would probably be How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Not the the new Ron Howard movie, but the the original animation from the the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, um, So the snowman lost to Mm. Tango um, from Spig Ribzinski and... Um, I thought this was brilliant. I, <laughs> yeah, no, I did too. Yeah, um, this isn't it impressive. Uh, well, maybe we should explain this, but uh, really, it's only eight minutes. But you should watch it. So, it's basically what happens. There are, I think, there are thirty, thirty-one or thirty-two different. Basically, basically, it's a room. Um, you know, a, a room in a house and. Certain characters come into come into the room through doors, and each character is on a loop. And it starts with one character, and eventually ends up with thirty-one or thirty-two characters on a loop, each doing the same thing. Um, or does it subtly change? I I wasn't sure if some of them subtly change. Um, after watching it a couple of times, it doesn't look like any of the characters change until the very very end. There's the right. loop breaks. Um, yeah. But the throughout most of the film, yeah, it's just constant the same, and and all of the characters. It's called Tango, I'm guessing because the characters are dancing around each other. Nobody, 
interacts and nobody crosses exact paths with anybody else. They're all just missing each other. So it's a just from a choreography point of view, I know it's an animation, but mm-hmm. it's incredible. The the depth of detail and the multiple layers of movement are just outstanding just from a conceptual point of view. Yeah, it's really bewitching um, to watch. And it's about sort of testing and expanding the form and the filmmaker challenging himself with the spatial restrictions of the form. And the fact that he manages to get this many cycles of people into this um, is really impressive. And I think he had to paint 16,000 mats, um, which I read, and several hundred thousand uh, exposures on an optical printer um, and he did that every day for seven, uh, seven months so this was a quite a long project in the making and um, I think he's quite upfront about the fact there are a lot of mistakes in it uh, you know mm-hmm. quite glaring errors at times like marks around the, you know the characters and stuff but yeah. you know really it's 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 undeniably um, special Mm-hmm. And it kind of, I mean, it reminded me a little bit of the uh, psychological experiment where they showed people a film of uh, people passing basketballs back and forth in a gym, and they told people, count the number of times the red ball bounces between people, and people did that, and then they would ask the people, okay, so how many people noticed the gorilla? in the film and barely anybody saw it. And they showed them the film again. And sure enough, right in the middle, this man in a gorilla suit walks right into the middle of the shot, pounds his chest a few times and walks out and nobody noticed it because they were all concentrating on the The balls being passed. And so I, I thought of that watching this because I'd be concentrating on some character and then I'd hear a new sound element and notice there was some other character who I hadn't even noticed had come in and started doing their thing. Um, and then it became kind of almost like a Where's Waldo or Where's Wally in, for uh, our UK listeners. Because it's like suddenly there were so many characters and I was I had to watch it a couple of times to just see when all of them started coming in because a lot of the times I'd notice them in the middle of their act and I would think, well, when when did they come in, you know? Yeah, you think it's like, oh, this person's new, but actually they've been there for like two or three minutes. It, yeah. Yeah, it's strange. Uh, yeah, it's... Yeah, I, I wasn't sure if some of them adapted to the lack of room, but that, I think that just speaks to how how meticulous it is that he, he's managed to get engineer it so that you can have all these people doing the things and they're not overlapping. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I this I thought this was stunning. This is a worthy winner for me. Same, yeah. Um, for me, it was the it was a clear winner. I mean, I like the snowman, but I think Tango, obvious winner. Sounds like our rankings are going to be the same. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Should we go for the ranking now then? Sure. And then I'll tell the. I want to tell the story of um, of uh, Zabigniew Rabchensky's adventure at the Oscars that year. Okay. All right. Okay. So um, 
Uh, three, I have the Great Cognito. Two, the Snowman. One, Tango. Same. Yep. Right down the yeah. line. Um, so yeah, uh, he won the Oscar, um, and the night began, I mean, the night began with Christy McNichol, who, um, I don't know if anybody remembers her, but she was somebody in the eighties she was in the Burt Reynolds movie, the end, but other than that, I can't remember her, but basically the evening began with her just butchering his name, uh, when she read the nominees. I mean, not, I know this was pre-internet, uh, you couldn't Google, how to pronounce Polish names, but somebody could have somebody could have told her. I felt kind of bad for yeah. him because clearly nobody Helper told out. her how to yeah. pronounce this guy's name. Um, <laughs> he came on stage with an interpreter, uh, and this wasn't like a the good interpreter that Bong Joon Ho had at the Oscars last year. This was clearly just somebody who kind of spoke English and Polish. I think it might have been his wife or maybe his girlfriend. Um, so he was trying to speak and she kept cutting him off, trying to translate and it was not very good, but he was just having the time of his life. I think he was a little drunk. Like he looked, (laughs) he looked pretty drunk. Um, but he's clearly just happy to be there and happy to be accepting the award. And then they tried to play him off, um, with the orchestra and Matt Dillon was the other presenter and Christy McNichol tried to like hustle him off stage and he just kind of brushes them aside. He's like, no, I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. I'm good. And so the orchestra dies, the applause dies, and he just continues with his speech. <laughs> um, Love it. And yeah, and his like his translator is not doing a good job. And they kind of cut to the audience. You see Paul Newman and Terry Garr and these people just and Dustin Hoffman just watching like. Um, amused as hell by this guy and also just like what the hell are we looking at um and he finishes and they applaud him and there's a cut they cut to jack lemon and you can see him his mouth he just says great that was great (laughs) so so jack lemon but then um the night took a turn uh he stepped outside for a smoke a victory smoke and when he tried to come back in holding his academy award the security guard wouldn't let him pass. And yeah. And he got into a fight, a scuffle with the security guard. They called the cops on him and he was arrested for causing a disturbance. Um, Apparently, um, apparently at one point uh, he shouted um, American pig. I have Oscar, uh, which probably didn't, which probably didn't help. But yeah, um, he he is the only person to win an Oscar and be arrested on the same night um, that we know of. That we know of, yes. Um, he later he later re- looked back on the event and said um, that success and failure are quite intertwined. That was his his summation of the whole thing. <laughs> Wonderful! What a story! <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But seriously, um, watch watch the presentation. He is just having the time of his life, and see if you agree with me that he's had a few uh, before. I imagine so. I imagine, given the security guard issue, yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask the question: Do you think Tango would win if this if it was now? Um, over I the don't snowman. Know. <sighs> mm-hmm. 
Probably now the snowman, because I think the winners nowadays kind of tend more towards narrative um, shorts, less less um, experimental stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, probably if it was if it was nowadays, twenty um, first century, I think it would probably go to snowman. Yeah, I feel the same way. Um, it does seem to be. And also, it's a consensus pick. I feel like more people are voting on that category now, um, mm-hmm. so it it becomes a little bit more. Um, the more outlandish you are, the less chance of winning. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we're going to talk about sort of a history of um, Christmas films at the Oscars. A sort of brief history, um, because. There's not been that many of them. Um, where do you want to start? Um, well, if we take it roughly in chronological order, I guess the first one that we mentioned was Holiday Inn, but I don't think either of us have seen that one. No, I I think, well, obviously the White Christmas video I've seen. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, yeah, I... Well, this got nominated for Best Story and Best Original Musical, uh, neither of which it won. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it has a it has a good repu- reputation, but I think it more has a reputation because of the song rather than the film. Yeah. Yeah, the song is probably what it's known for most. Um, but again, it didn't win either of those. But the 40s mm-hmm. were a very successful time for Christmas films. Yeah, um, we had a big uh, big three, probably, um, beginning in the 19th Academy Awards with It's a Wonderful Life. And then uh, the following year, we had two Christmas movies nominated for Best Picture, Bishop's Wife and Miracle on 34th Street. So you just watched It's a Wonderful Life for the first time uh, recently, right? Today. Yeah. And what did you make of it? I liked it. Um, I didn't love it. Um, (laughs) But Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting about it is it's a two-hour film. And at the beginning, you get the angels talking. And you can't see the angels, but you get the voiceover of the angels talking. Saying, you know, we've got to save this man. We've got to... um, You've got to go down, Clarence, and and talk to him. Mm -hmm. And... For me, it's interesting that Christmas Carol makes most of that a film um, with the angel and um, the Scrooge, for instance. It's a similar kind of conceit, but with Christmas Carol, it's most of the film, whereas this, it's only the last half hour. um, Mm -hmm. And I really feel like it needs to happen sooner. Uh, There's like an hour and a half before that, so... I really feel like they could have framed that better and um, found a way of integrating integrating, uh, the angel into the story um, either from the beginning or quicker because it does drag a little bit in the first half. Yeah. But I don't really object to the... I don't really object to the corny element of the you know, what would life be like if you hadn't existed? I do think it was much, this kind of thing was much better dealt with in 
uh, A Matter of Life and Death, the Powell and Pressburger film, where mm-hmm. it's sort of like a courtroom decides whether you deserve to go back to he- like whether you've lived your life in a noble enough way to then be sent back. I thought that was a much more interesting way of presenting the dilemma than, you know, mm. look at everybody could be miserable if you weren't here sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, but the the weird thing to me, and also it's kind of a not really that honest a setup, though, because does George Bailey ever say he wishes he'd never been born? He just wants to die, right? Like, he, he's trying to commit suicide, not erase his existence. So it doesn't really make... Yeah, so, so really it should have said... It really should have showed him what would happen after he died and how miserable everyone else would be then. Yeah, that, that would have been more um, more germane. But... And, the, and so it doesn't really address the central problem of Bedford Falls, which is Potter. He's still there at the end. Mm. You know, it that's I think what bothers me about the movie is that Frank Capra really seems to think that he's nailed a happy ending here. And it's a terrible ending. Everybody is fucked at the end of this movie. Um, like, Where does the twenty five thousand pounds come from? I didn't understand that bit. It, I mean, that's I mean, I think it was like a loan from um, this friend of George's who had left town years ago and become successful um kind of a deus ex machina kind of thing um but even so that's just adding to george's debt you know um now he has another twenty five thousand dollars he has to pay back and i think it's much worse to be in debt to a friend than to an enemy uh and then of course um every everybody in town has just given him their loose change to save his business so what happens next Potter is still controlling everything. Potter is still consolidating his power. And now the townsfolk are all even more broke than they used to be. So I kind of think Bill or George Bailey is going to be back on that bridge in, a, in about a month um, when he when he realizes that, nope, life is still pretty shitty. Um, and, mm. I, and I hate the flashback to the fake flashback to the alternate timeline um that shows what would happen if he'd never been born okay his brother dying pretty sad yes but um like what else uh the the and then the worst thing for him the thing that makes him break down and rush back to the bridge and beg for his life back it isn't his brother dying it isn't the pharmacist uh, prescribing the poison or whatever happens uh, in that bit. It's the fact that he sees his wife and she wears glasses. And yeah, that's it. Like, like, yeah, because she's a librarian now. Yeah, and <laughs> she's so useful in that role. I mean, look at her. She's single-handedly running a library in a town as slummy as Pottersville, the library looks pretty good. So it's not been vandalized. It's People aren't using it very much. But, I mean, that's my dream job, to work in a library where nobody bothers me and I can just read all the day. She's got, she's yeah. living her best life. Um, yeah. But, oh, no, she she has to bear his children to be fulfilled as a woman, I guess. 
Uh, otherwise, she'll just be this sad librarian. Yeah, boohoo. Um, <laughs> and it's going to be worse for her, man, because she can't. When, he, like I said, when he is back on that bridge in a month, and he goes through with it this time because there's no more angels who need their wings at that moment. Um, now she can't go back to run the library because she's a widow with four children to support. Ah, everybody in that town is is so fucked. Um, it and yeah, that's the problem. Um, it's not a happy ending, George is basically now he's going to know he's better off dead, not think it. And this time he's going to go through with it. I think you, I think there's a blog post missing here. There needs, there needed to be some kind, or did you, when you did 1946, is this, was there an extensive? Um, um, a, a lot of these. Yeah. Um, I'm actually um, cribbing a bit from memories of my original blog post about this. Yeah. Um, because this, this was, I, this was probably my longest post devoted to a single film at the time. I mean, I've gotten much more verbose with the blog since then, but I just had so much to say because it bothers me that this movie is a Christmas classic and people think of it as this great humanity affirming film when there's no evidence of it to me, um, and if, if if Capra had intended it to be dark and intended it to be this kind of um, cynical almost reflection on um, George Bailey's life, like, I was expecting better, especially after seeing Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Um, I'd kind of seen how Capra could um, weave in an optimistic protagonist with a world determined to keep him down and yet still finding the courage to stand. Um, this is a lot more on the you can't take it with you level. This is yeah. It's got very similar themes. Um, yeah. Although, it, I mean, Stuart is very good, I think, in this, but he was always great. Yeah, he always is. Um, and I think he's the right man for the role as he usually was uh, in his Capra roles, for sure. Um, Yeah, he does a great job. Um, I'm not faulting him. Um, I'm faulting Capra. But this got got five Oscar nominations, including picture director and actor. Yeah. Um, The following year, I would hesitate to go into these films because I think at some point we do want to go... we, We do want to do Best Picture 1947... Um, yeah, but we do have two best picture nominees uh, are Christmas films, which are The Bishop's Wife and Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. Any ideas why these two resonated? Why they, there was a, such a need to reward such wholesome films? You've also got Great <laughs> Expectations, which is pretty. It's pretty universally sort of harmless, really. You know. Yeah. Um, I think maybe because um, the rest of the nominees this year were, I mean, you had the winner was, again, without going into too much detail, because not to spoil a future episode, but you had the winner, Gentleman's Agreement, you had Crossfire, both of which pretty heavy dealing with anti-Semitism, dealing with, um, you know, societal issues. And then you had a 
uh, and Dickens adaptation. I think mm. these two films kind of balance it out by giving you this kind of like harmless, fun entertainment. And these are undeniably fun movies to watch, uh, especially The Bishop's Wife. I mean, it's just a lark from start to finish, even if it uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense overall. And I think Cary Grant as an angel is a little questionable in his motives, but <laughs> and I just feel bad for David Niven throughout this movie. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I, it kind of makes me wonder why Great Expectations didn't win because it's kind of the one that's straight down the middle of this lineup, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I those two Christmas films I haven't seen in a while, and I don't have favorable uh, thoughts on either of them. So when we do re- revisit the category, I hope to think more fondly of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we've got a big gap to 1982 and The Snowman, which we've discussed. Uh, do we want to talk about Die Hard? I mean... I don't see how we can't. I mean, it's a, a classic Christmas story. Um, I th- and uh, obviously very different from the usual Christmas fair. Of course, it, it wasn't nominated at anything um, in any of the so-called big categories. It was up for its editing. But, I mean, it's a Christmas movie, right? And it's a damned good one. So Yeah, earn, four, earn nominations. four nominations. Four um... nominations most accomplished I guess was editing the film editing they got um it's yeah it's one where it's not overtly a Christmas film but then it's set at Christmas and at the end it's very much at the beginning and end it's very much framed around Christmas uh when mm. it's not you know so and it's a great film I've not seen it in a while actually but yeah I love this movie it's it's one of my favorite action movies mm. yeah and I I don't know but did it did it start any kind of cuz every successful film spawns copycats did it did it start any trend of like action films set around major holidays or like some straight to video kind of stuff in the early 90s like thanksgiving terrorists or easter you know takeovers or things like that you know what you saying that's just reminded me of this brilliant film from 1978 uh called The Silent Partner and it's with Christopher Plummer and basically Christopher Plummer's like a bank robber that dresses up as Santa um, and it's all about this money and that you know him trying to get back the money and it, it's set at Christmas obviously um, <laughs> and it's an absolutely brilliant film everybody should check this out it's one of my favorite films from 1978 called The Silent Partner, but it is sort of a like an action thriller um, set at Christmas. But that's obviously before Die Hard. Um, but I don't know if Die Hard started a trend. I can't think of anything after that. What 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 were you thinking of especially? I, I wasn't. I was just at, wondering, kind of a kind of out loud. I think there's always a debate whether if something's set at Christmas is it a Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. Like Carol, for instance, is set at Christmas, but you wouldn't really call it a Christmas movie. Mm, I guess not. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know what makes something a Christmas movie if it's just vaguely around that time. Um, but of course, Christmas, uh, I think Die Hard is a Christmas movie because it being Christmas is what sets the plot in motion. It's why it's why this party is going on. It's why John McClane is in Los Angeles. If it wasn't Christmas, we wouldn't have Die Hard, whereas you could still have Carol um, if it wasn't christmas yes exactly yeah i kind of yeah it has to function into the plot in some way yeah and also you got you know what would he write on the guy on the first henchman he kills you know if he can't write now i have a machine gun ho 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 you know what have you got (laughs) you know (laughs) couldn't write gobble 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 at thanksgiving or something but it wouldn't be as pithy uh, next, we've got Home Alone, um, one of John Williams' 780 nominations <laughs> for Best Score. Um, yeah. Did it deserve Best Score? What do we think? It's got a great score. Um, yeah. It's a, just a fantastic score that um, I think everybody can hum along that uh, theme. Um, and just overall, I think it has a very... Uh, a very nice musical quality to it. Um, the score complements the action and the and the emotions without kind of going over the top the way Williams can sometimes do. So, mm. no, definitely, I think it succeeds um, as a score. Totally, yeah. Uh, and we have. Claws, which just last year Claws was nominated for Best Animated Film, which is pretty much very blatantly Christmassy. It's about Santa Claus. Um, Did you see this? I haven't seen this, no. Is it a short short film or a a feature? No, no, no. In the animated feature. Um, Mm. And I think also, if I'm not mistaken, I think it won... The um, the BAFTA for best animated feature. I haven't seen this, but I I've heard very different differing opinions on it. Hmm. I have to watch it. It's a a Netflix movie, so it should be shouldn't be too hard to find. What do you think it is about Christmas films that don't necessarily um connect with the Academy? Um especially since the 40s is this is this just a question of them being novelty films that are, are pretty throwaway in general i think that's yeah i think that's pretty much it um christmas films tend to be just that like christmas films very self-consciously christmas films designed to fill the seats but not necessarily um be great cinema and i'm not saying that any of the uh, films that got nominated in the 40s were great cinema but they were definitely closer to the kind of best picture fare that we were Mm -hmm. used to at that time than yeah christmas films of today um and i mean even the remake of miracle on 34th street i don't think had a chance of uh moving the needle in the Academy sense that, that it's original had, but yeah, most Christmas movies I just think of as 
yeah, popcorny kind of movies like Love Actually mm-hmm. type films that uh, I don't think are ever going to get much Oscar attention. Well, I think Love Actually is probably something that's a little bit closer to that. Give I think it got a couple of BAFTA nominations, um, but I'm thinking of like films like The Family Stone is one where it was talked about for Oscars before the Oscars and before it got sort of lukewarm reviews um, mm. but it does feel like it takes a lot of stars to be in it for it to be become something that could potentially be talked about at the Oscars yeah but never I don't think it would ever be like a best picture kind of thing maybe an acting nomination or something like that yeah yeah um yeah so we'll see watch i was gonna say watch this space but i don't think there's any danger of a christmas film being nominated this year um but who knows i kind of doubt it <laughs> all right we have a website it's categoricallyoscars.com we're on twitter at categorically oh and we're on spotify google podcasts etc uh next episode what are we doing january 9th we're back we're we're taking a christmas break and um we'll be back in three weeks to with a new category and a new year yep that's right and our first um our first category of the new year is going to be best adapted screenplay 1949 um the nominees that year were all the king's men the best picture winner Bicycle Thieves, the Best Foreign Language Film winner. Um, Mm -hmm. Best, I'm sorry, uh, Champion, The Fallen Idol, and the winner, A Letter to Three Wives by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, who you may remember from Mank as the neglected younger brother of the great Herman Mankiewicz. (laughs) And um, I just, it's been ages since I saw these films. Um, but uh, I do remember reading the plot of A Letter to Three Wives and thinking, I want to see this film. It just sounds great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it is a bit, it is very juicy. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to revisiting that one. Um, but yeah, we've got some, I mean, Bicycle Thieves, people, people regard that as the best film ever. So we've definitely got some big hitters in this lineup. Yeah. For sure. I mean, I'm just interested in, um, ever since I found out that A Letter to Three Wives is named after a novel called A Letter to Five Wives, and I just want to find out where the other two wives went in the adaptation process. You can ask Mankiewicz. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I would try to get in contact with Ben Mankiewicz on Twitter, maybe he knows.
寂寞。